So let me invite you to consider a few uh, headlines uh, that I've, I've written. I've taken the liberty of making them up just to, to give an analogy. But consider this potential headline. Washington Nationals surge in the standings. Now, if you didn't know better, if you didn't know the context of that headline, uh, you would think that the Washington Nationals are making a run for the playoffs and maybe even another world championship like we had uh, in 2019. But if you didn't know the proper context, you would know what I'm trying to say there is I'm hoping the Nationals surge to catch the woeful Marlins so we don't finish in last place this year. That's the proper context. Or consider this potential headline. After a long and difficult battle, Lee is finally toppled. If you didn't have the proper context, you would think that you're reading a history of the Civil War, maybe one of the final chapters of the Civil War. Instead, you're, as you're probably aware, that headline could be speaking to the removal this past week of the largest Confederate statue of Robert E. Lee on Monument Avenue in Richmond, Virginia. Context. Context matters. It makes all the difference in how we properly understand that which is trying to be conveyed. Well, today we're beginning a new series called Text Context. And in this series, we're taking a look at three often quoted Bible verses like the headlines above uh, could be that are often taken out of context and can be misunderstood. Candidly, any passage from the Bible can be taken out of context and misunderstood. So whenever we study the Bible, it's important that we do our very best to try to discern the, the original intent as best as we can from the 21st century, that we try to understand the original intent and meaning. Now, in a few weeks, we'll look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13 in the context around that. And the idea that's often uh, said with that verse that God will never give us more uh, than we can handle. Uh, next week, we'll take a look at the passage from 2 Chronicles 7.14 that says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, pray, seek my face, and turn, I will heal, heal their land. We'll take a look at the, the appropriate context for that passage. This week we began with a passage from Romans that is often quoted when someone is going through a very challenging and very difficult time. That's Romans 8.28. Uh, when read alone, reads like this, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Beautiful, beautiful promise that in my view gets even better and even deeper when we try to understand the appropriate context. So let me invite you to turn or launch your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And uh, we'll be reading today Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 39. We'll spend most of our time on that section of the passage that is often taken out of context, but I do want us to consider uh, the entire passage. So a few notes of housekeeping before we get started. First of all, uh, always, 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 always encourage you uh, to take a look at the resources I provided for you uh, on your handout if you want to uh, dig into deeper additional study. I absolutely respect uh, the, the scholars that I've listed for you there. I've studied them. Uh, they have shaped my thinking for uh, this uh, passage today. Uh, and let me say this also. You may have heard, you may have quoted these passages out of context before. 
I know I have. This series is not meant to diminish or disrespect how God and how, how God may have used these verses in your past, in your life, or in the life of a loved one. So, so please hear that. Uh, it's no, intent, uh, no uh, uh, intention at all to bring disrespect to maybe how you've held these verses in the past. It is my hope to place them in their broader context. And it's my hope and my prayer during this series that these verses will actually be elevated in your view as you consider your spiritual journey. Now, before we read uh, the passage together, let me at least take uh, a few moments and place Romans chapter 8, in the, uh, 8, 28 through 39 in the broader context of Romans and Romans chapter 8. The whole theme of the letter of Romans, which is written by St. Paul to the church at Rome, the whole theme there is a celebration and a defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ, which is a power, which has power and is able to save the Jew and the non-Jew. That's the powerful thesis of the entire letter of Romans. And then another sub-theme that we see in Romans is this idea of St. Paul encouraging the church and encouraging those who are going through a very difficult time And one of the things that we see in chapter 8 is this idea of freedom and these incredible sense of freedoms that Christians have. For example, uh, we see in Romans chapter 8 that we are liberated from condemnation. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We see that we are liberated from this sense of defeat. And Paul talks about in the power of the Holy Spirit that we can be victorious. We see that we're liberated from this idea of despair when Paul tells us that our suffering will turn to glory and this incredible, incredible promise that even when we don't know how to pray, when we're facing a difficult, have you ever faced a difficult decision or a difficult situation and and, and you wanted to go to God in prayer and you didn't even know how to pray, Paul tells us that we don't need to despair because even the Holy Spirit of God within us will pray for us when we don't even know how to pray. And now in this closing section of this most extraordinary chapter, we find another point of liberation, if you will, another point of freedom, and that is freedom from fear. Freedom from the fear of being separated from the love of God. So that is our context leading up. Let's look at 1 Romans 8, 28 uh, through 30. Paul writes, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So let's just take a look. Let's peel the layers, if you will, on this incredible promise. And one of the first things we need to see is that bad things can be redeemed. That in the power of God, bad things can be redeemed. In all things, Paul writes, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And we need to acknowledge right away, and I think all of us would acknowledge it in this room, but it's good for us to to acknowledge that bad things happen to Christians all the time. 
that just because you are in Christ, just because you receive Christ as your Savior, it doesn't mean that you're immune. It doesn't mean that you've been inoculated, vaccinated, whatever word we want to use, from bad things happening while we are on our journey here on earth. Christians get sick. Christians suffer and die. Christians get cheated out of money. Christians are victims of senseless crimes. Christians experience the scourge of racial prejudice and injustice. Christians lose jobs. Christians are in automobile accidents that are injured and are killed. Christians died at the hands of evil terrorists on 9-11-2001, 20 years and a day ago. Bad things happen to Christians. And being a Christian does not make you immune to bad things happening. We need to know this. And we need to be reminded of this. Because when bad things do happen to us, we need to know that our Lord has not left us. Our Lord has not abandoned us. Our Lord has not forsaken us. So bad things happen to Christians. Second, this passage also does not mean that bad things are good things. You may have heard somebody use this passage before, and when somebody is in a time of suffering or a time of grief or a time of pain, unless they say, oh, no, no, this is going to be good. This is good. No, this does not mean bad things are good things. If lightning strikes a tree in your front yard and it crashes in on your house, it is not a good thing. If your pipes freeze and burst and your family room all of a sudden becomes the family swimming pool, it is not a good thing. But well-meaning, yet misguided Christians throughout the years will say to someone, well, Jim Bob, God just meant for you to have two condos instead of one house. I don't know why I slipped in my southern accent there, but I did. Jim Bob just seemed to fit on that one. It is not a bad thing. It is not a good thing, excuse me. It's a bad thing. And God does not cause bad things to happen. For example, God is not the author of evil. Bad things happen because of evil all the time. But oh, it's so important. God will work so that there's an ultimate, that's the key word there, ultimate good effect in your life. Which brings us to the next aspect of this promise. The good that God will bring in your life cannot be lost. Let me say it again. The good that God will bring into your life cannot be lost. Verses 29 and 30 show us that God has been working His goodness and grace in our lives, not only in the present, but also in eternity past and eternity future. Now, anytime we try to describe God's activity, we need to understand that one of the incredible attributes of God is that God is eternal. And often when we think of this attribute of God as God being eternal, we think about God being eternal as into the future. But the idea of God being eternal means that God is fully present in the past, God is fully present in the present, and God is fully present in the future. C.S. Lewis calls this the eternal now. It's always now to God. It is one of the great mysteries of God that God stands over and above time and space. Let's continue just to peel back the layers just a little bit more. All things work together for the good, for those God foreknew. When we hear this idea of foreknowledge, we are tempted to reduce it to the idea of foreseeing. 
But in the Bible, this concept of knowledge means so much more than knowing about something in advance. There are two concepts associated with this idea in the Bible. One is, is the concept of knowledge, right? One is to know about, which is cognitive, to know the facts about something. But in the Bible, to know is most often used as to know something lovingly and in a relationship. So a literal interpretation of this might be for those whom God foreloved. Let this sink in with you for a moment. God set his love upon you long before you loved him. Remember, it's Paul who wrote that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Parents, you know this concept. You set your love on your child long before your child could even embrace the concept of love. Your love for God can only be a response to God first loving you. Paul writes then that God predestined those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Let me hit the pause button uh, for a second. The doctrine of predestination is perhaps one of the most controversial doctrines in the church. There's a stream of Christian thought that interprets this doctrine to mean that from the very beginning of time, God predestined some to be Christians, and therefore those who are predestined make up the chosen or make up the elect. Conversely, those who are not predestined by implication do not have the possibility to respond to the offer of salvation in Jesus. This would be a classic Reformed theology. There's another stream of Christian thought that interprets the doctrine of predestination to mean that God, from the very beginning of time, predestined that all those who would freely choose Jesus, he predestined those to be the elect, he predestined those to be the chosen, and he predestined those to be conformed to the image of Christ. This view would hold that the atonement of Jesus on the cross was unlimited, that Christ died for all, all, and all have the ability to respond to God's call of salvation. Wise, brilliant, humble scholars have looked at the issue, have looked at the text, have looked at the context and disagreed. Perhaps this issue can be the main topic of a sermon one day. Personally, I hold the second view. However, good and godly Christians disagree, and we can disagree on things. For that matter, good and godly Baptists disagree on the matter. But that's not unusual for where there are three Baptists, there are five opinions, right? Let's hit the play button again. In this passage, though, Paul did not ever intend to set off a 2,000-year debate in the church. In the context of this passage, Paul is being a pastor. Paul is encouraging the Christians in Rome to not be afraid when trouble and hardship and struggle comes their way, to not feel defeated and not feel in despair that they can and we can be victorious. We can be more than conquerors. We'll get to that in just a moment. And that God is always working to bring about from the beginning of time to now into eternity the ultimate good for His people, which is what? Which is to conform His people into the image of Jesus. 
It is to conform His people into the image of Jesus. The good that God is working in your life, the process of turning bad things into good, is about you becoming more and more like Jesus. Let me say it a different way. The good that Paul is talking about is to make you like Jesus. It's not to lift that tree off your roof and repair your roof if it fell and crashed in. The good is to make you more like Jesus. This means that over time as God is working, you will be able to forgive like Jesus forgives. That you will be able to have the compassion that Jesus has for others. You will be able to have a heart for people who are not like you, like God has a heart for all people. You will be able to seek to live in a spirit of unity like Jesus commanded His church. He will form in you the desire to worship the Father and to pray like He does. He will make those who who you just have a struggle to love, He will make them lovely in your eyes. God will work in the hard, bad things to bring about the fragrance of Jesus in you. That's what God will do. And this promise is fixed. It is appointed. It is anchored not in your power. It's in the, anchored in the power of the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. The good that God is doing in you to make you like Jesus can not be lost because it doesn't depend on you. It depends on God. That is a powerful promise. One more aspect of this promise. Things will get even better. Those he called, Paul writes, he also justified. Called here means the call of God in your life that brings you to salvation. Justification means that when we say yes to Christ, God looks at us as sinful as we may be and declares us in right standing with him because of the goodness and the righteousness of Jesus, not ours. This reminds us that the best gift we have, the greatest of all good things, is our salvation in Jesus. And it's about God and His salvation playing out in our lives daily, every day, and yet the best of it is still to come. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, yet you feel something drawing you to start a relationship with Christ, don't ignore it. That something is someone. It's the Spirit of God stirring in your heart. For you see, it's the Spirit of God that convicts us and tells us that we need to be saved. It's the Spirit that enlightens our hearts and our minds with the knowledge of Jesus. It's the Spirit that renews our wills and humbles us. It's the Spirit of God that persuades us and enables us to embrace Jesus freely offered in the Gospel. Those he justified, he glorified. To be glorified doesn't mean that we're hoisted on the shoulders and carried off the field like a hero in your favorite football team this afternoon. It means that God has completed his work of the all things. God has completed his work of the all things. He's finished forming you into the nature and the image of Jesus on the other side of eternity. When you will be glorified and God's work in you is finished. He who started a good work will be faithful to complete it. Now, in the closing verses of this passage, Paul lays out what I can only describe as a flourish of confidence. I'm not going to dig deep into every aspect of this, but we do need to see it as a continuation of the thought of Paul here. Our freedom, remember, from the fear 
of losing or being separated from the love of God. Listen to this, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So we got the Holy Spirit praying for us. we got Jesus praying for us. We're prayed for. We just need to pray for ourselves even, right? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Drop the mic. If Paul had had a mic, he'd have gone boom. What a celebration of the steadfast love of God. I know this is, is this, this is uh, the first Sunday of the NFL season, right? I know they played a few, few games here and there before now. But this reminds me of like a rousing halftime speech from a coach, doesn't it? Look at the five rapid questions. Will not God, uh, if God is for us, who can be against us? Will not God give us all we need? Who can accuse us? Who can condemn us? What in the world can separate us? He's just, he's just having a ball. You know, Paul's poor little scribe, he had a scribe you know, most of the time, right? He was like, oh, I just can't keep up. Because Paul had to be excited. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Somebody say nothing. Have you ever seen one of those movies in which there is a, a, a literal cliffhanger? You know, not a metaphorical cliffhanger where you don't know what happens, but like literally someone's hanging off a cliff. Maybe it's only in the cartoons, but you, you get my, my, my thought there. Someone falls over a building or a cliff and they grab someone's hand and they hang on for dear life, like the picture there, until they start slipping. Sometimes I think we imagine the Christian life that way. If you'll keep that picture up there. Sometimes I think we imagine our life of faith like that. I'm just hanging on to Jesus. Have you ever heard somebody say, I'm just hanging on? Well, if your salvation is about you hanging on, you're probably going to lose your grip. The better analogy for God is the person who is on the top of the building or the cliff. It is their grip that saves. It is their grip that holds. It is their grip that perseveres through all things. And it will never, ever, ever fail. That grip of God will not let go. I don't know about you, but that'll carry me through the week. And this makes us more than conquerors.
This makes us more than conquerors because it's the work and the power of God in your life and the love of God set on you that makes you a conqueror. We've covered a lot of real estate in a little bit of time, and I'm glad. But go all the way back up to verse 28 again and notice something with me. That great promise that God works in all things to bring about our ultimate good, what a promise. But with every promise in the Bible, there's a premise, right? With every promise, there's a premise. And the premise here is that promise is not a universal promise. It is for those who love God. It is for those who have answered his divine call to salvation. That's the premise. It is for those who love God and who have answered God's call to divine salvation. Let me ask you, is this promise for you this morning? Do you love God this morning? Have you answered God's call to salvation by receiving Christ and committing to his lordship? Do you have the faith, even as small, as tiny as a mustard seed, that he can work all things in your life for your ultimate good to make you like Jesus? I pray that if you hear the call of God this morning offering you salvation, that you will say yes to God. I pray that in all things and at all times, even in the horrible ones, that you will recognize that you cannot be separated from the love of God and that in Him, you are a conqueror. Amen? Amen. Will you pray with me? God, we humbly bow before you this morning and in faith, we recognize that you work in our lives and that you in your wisdom and power can use even the bad things, the horrible things in our lives to shape us to be more like your son, our Lord Jesus. Give us the faith we need today, O oh God, to claim this promise. Enable us by your grace to hear you calling us this morning, some to salvation, some to repentance, some to renewal. Give us a vision for you and a vision for our life that indeed, because of Jesus, we will never be separated from your love. And because of your love, we are more than conquerors. In Christ, our conqueror, our champion, we pray. Amen. Well, this morning...